Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton, and contributing editor to the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. This week, we'll be discussing the sentencing of that 70s show actor, Danny Masterson, on rape charges and what it has to do with the Church of Scientology. And we'll remember 9-11 and Jimmy Buffett. But first, I want to go to New Hampshire. New Hampshire is where former Vice President Mike Pence delivered a speech. uh, And the point of this speech was to contrast a vision that he had for what conservatism is and should be, and contrasting that with populism. And I believe I saw that they were calling this speech uh, a time for choosing, which is a very Mike Pence thing to have done, because, of course, that is the name of the 1964 speech that Ronald Reagan gave on behalf of Barry Goldwater. And Mike Pence uh, is and has done nothing if not completely tried to model his entire political career after Ronald Reagan. Um So the speech, which uh, um, I have uh, listened to excerpts of and and read most of and read the news coverage of, and I know, Dylan, you just listened to the entirety of it uh, on 1.25 speed, which uh, we found to be the recommendable speed on which to listen to Mike Pence. Um, I will give a little bit here from uh, the New York Times coverage of it, a piece by Jonathan Swan. Former Vice President Mike Pence devoted an entire speech on Wednesday to what he called a, quote, fundamental and unbridgeable divide within the Republican Party. The split between Reaganite conservatives like himself and propagators of populism like former President Donald J. Trump and his imitators. Mr. Pence, who is polling in the single digits in the GOP presidential primary race and lags far behind the front runner, Mr. Trump, has been warning about the dangers of populism for nearly a year. But his speech on Wednesday went further than he has gone before, casting Mr. Trump's populism as, quote, a road to ruin. Uh, Excerpt here from the speech. Should the new populism of the right seize and guide our party, the Republican Party, as we have long known it will cease to exist, Mr. Pence said at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College in Manchester, and the fate of American freedom would be in doubt. Uh, And again, it is noted here that uh, the line echoed, we have come to a time for choosing, a reference to Reagan's 64 speech. So there are – there's the politics of this speech, which is not really the subject for our show, although I imagine there will be some commentary on that. But there is also the substance of this speech and this contrasting of conservatism in the American understanding of the term and populism. Uh, so, Dylan, from your uh, hot off the listen to Mike Pence's uh, dulcet tones extolling the virtues of conservatism and the problem of populism, uh, how do you see his contrast of these two different forms of political expression? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a really good topic. Um, it's going to be a relevant topic, I think, for a long time. 
Um, I'm also glad that we're talking about Mike Pence since two weeks ago we discussed the Republican debate and none of us thought to mention that Mike Pence was there, um, which says For something about- For understandable reasons. It says something about how forgettable his debate performance was. Um, but as for the substance of what he said, he very much uh, not only tried to you know, quote and reference Ronald Reagan, but he even did a Ronald Reagan impression, which was not that bad uh, at part of the speech. Um, so he really wants to be the next Ronald Reagan. The problem is he doesn't strike me as like a big ideas guy at the end of the day. He wants to win. He wants Joe Biden not to be president. He wants himself to be president. He also doesn't want people like Donald Trump and the more populist candidates to win because they are his opponents. Um, but, you know, and he, and he mentioned things like entitlement programs are huge and we got to do something about those. OK, that's that's good. That's that's something. Um, but that doesn't really get at populism to me. I mean, populism is you know, basically the the idea of, you know, majority rules uh, and, you know, kind of absolute popular democracy, direct democracy, that kind of thing. Um, and whatever the passions of the people is, that should be the law. Um, and that can be very powerful. Um, and I think it can be a very dangerous thing. So to the extent that he he would agree with that, then great. We're on the same page. But his proposal was basically just elect me. Right. That was that was his alternative. And in fact, at one point, even he even went to great lengths to to try to convince everyone that presidents have to do everything, which is one of the big problems. <laughs> That's how you get populism. That's how you get everybody putting all their eggs in this big basket of if our party doesn't win for president, then we got to think about civil war or whatever. You know, all this this crazy sort of rhetoric we have today uh, when really what we need are ways to make political offices less powerful and less important, um, and especially at the national level, um, if not also the state level. So it'd be great if he was calling for, you know, repealing the amendment that allowed for the direct election of senators. That would be an anti-populist move. He's not going to do that because nobody wants that because populism is a real thing. And it's a very unelectable uh, campaign, you know, uh, proposition. But that's the sort of thing you would need. If you really want to battle populism, you need our, our federalist system. Um, so we actually have some constitutional measures that, that make that the case. States do still have rights and priorities. Um, people do still vote on the local level. Um, but we have this big, big problem of just everything being pushed to the national level. And I don't see how we really get away from that. Um, with our current electoral system. In fact, if anything, we have a popular push in the other direction. We've had it for the last 23 years now, since the 2000 election, uh, with everybody calling for the abolition of the Electoral College, which is barely a check on populism, but that's why it was originally put into place. Uh, people don't like it. Uh, they just want whoever gets the most votes to win. Um, and there are reasons why that's not the way we work. And in fact, it still works. You have to win a majority of the you know states, right? You have to get delegates in states, and that you know that's a slight, tiny check on that kind of populism. We need more constitutional checks on it if it's something we really we also, are worried about. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> we also seem. I'm sorry. <laughs> we also seem to define populism as anything I currently do not like. 
Yeah. Um, or anything currently associated with Donald Trump. So, you know, at times Donald Trump has adopted very populist ideas. At times he's adopted very libertarian ideas and criminal justice reform. But it, no, no one's sitting down and asking Mike Pence what his feelings are on the Jones Act or trans protectionism or, you know, it, it seems like when you talk about, oh, I'm anti-populist, you really just mean, oh, I am currently anti-Trump. Um, and that may not be the best way to position in a field, you know, I'm not saying about politically, but just in terms of giving people a choice of what they might want to see in a president. It isn't always necessarily that I want this person that's in top down charge constantly um, and is responsible for everything. And and therefore, you know, therefore, go there, go Trump, therefore, go I. Um you, you kind of have this problem where people see themselves in a president, they want the president to be their duly elected bully, um, rather than wanting the president to be an executive officer of the country. And Pence has, up to now, um, largely seen himself more as a traditional Republican, more as a traditional executive. And all of a sudden, now he is an anti-populist um, uh, dare I say he thinks he's a libertarian, um, which looking at Mike Pence's record is kind of not a thing. Yeah. Um, listeners to this program will be unsurprised by my next comment, which is, uh, you know, who has two thumbs and does not like populism? This guy. Uh, however, I, I think there are a number of problems with Pence's speech, even though I appreciate it directionally in trying to point out some of the problems that have come along with the populism of really not just the last eight years of really since Donald Trump came down the escalator, but going back at least as far as the financial crisis and the Tea Parties, uh, which was a populist movement and it was a populist movement that I kind of liked in part to borrow from uh, Jonah Goldberg, who was on this program uh, several weeks ago. Uh, we talked a little bit about similar topics. Um, it The Tea Party seemed to be this populist movement that would finally fulfill that ancient libertarian prophecy of taking over the government and leaving everybody alone uh, really did not cash out that way. Um, but I appreciate directionally where he's going with this. But I think there are there are substance problems with this speech and there are political problems with the speech. Some of the political problems Emily already touched on, but I'll come back to in a second. I think the substance problems with this speech is uh, populism is and always has been a force in American politics and it has been on the left and it has been on the right. Um, the, one, of the, one of the reasons that I don't like it is because, and again, to borrow from Jonah Goldberg where I first heard this quote, um, and he references uh, William Jennings Bryan in his speech, Mike Pence does, uh, is this quote from William Jennings Bryan of the people of Nebraska are for free silver. Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. Now, as somebody who no longer engages in campaign management or electoral politics directly and does, you know, far more eggheady things here at places like the Acton Institute, um, I really dislike that kind of look at an important issue. Uh, there is, as I think Emily kind of referenced, there is this feeling of there go the people and I go, therefore I go with them because I am their leader. Uh, 
that is kind of the the essence of populism, both on the left and on the right. And it has been traditionally a part of the conservative movement as well. I mean, there's you know uh, there are plenty of examples of populism in and around Ronald Reagan's successful campaign for the presidency, which is something that Mike Pence is holding up as a, as a good example. Now, the question of the balance of how much populism and how much if again to, if we want to try to set apart conservatism which i don't think quite works because there are just inherent populist elements to some of conservatism's positions or at least some of movement conservatism's positions um i, I think he's got a lot of problems from a substance perspective there uh because there there just there is this and while I think it needs to be held in check better, and there are plenty of things we could do to hold it in check better, I think if Congress functioned a little bit more like it is supposed to, I think that helps hold um, populist movements like this in check. I think there are substance problems with the speech. There are also political problems with the speech. Again, that's not really our beat here, but I will just comment on them very briefly, which is – if he is defining Mike Pence, that is populism as the things that Donald Trump does, I guess on one hand, it is better to come around to the correct position or opinion on this later than never. You know, to quote um, uh, Cheech and Chong from uh, Ghostbusters 2 when the Titanic pulls up, well, better late than never. Uh, it. It is still a problem for him politically because he was the vice president to Donald Trump for four years. Now, we should acknowledge him for having done the right thing on January 6th when he was under a lot of political pressure from Trump and from Trump supporters and was given these just bonkers legal theories from people like John Eastman that said he could use some kind of maneuvers in his role presiding over uh, Congress in the Electoral College, counting and totaling and all of that to somehow declare Donald Trump either the reelected president of the United United States or somehow send it back to the state. He did the right thing, but he will forever have a political problem in that he was the guy who was – speaking of you know Donald Trump's broad-shouldered leadership for four years and now finds himself in this place. And like, look, he's, he's talking about Trump by name. He is talking about a lot of the problems that do exist within the conservative movement and the Republican Party right now and in the country at large. I mean, again, we should acknowledge there have been plenty of populist movements on the left as well. He cites William Jennings Bryan, Occupy Wall Street, which was the left wing reaction to the financial crisis and the things going on at that time. I, I think we'll come back to this a little bit when we talk about the today being the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, but there are absolutely some populist waves and some connected to some conspiratorial things that came out of 9-11. So I think while I appreciate his speech directionally, there are substance problems with it and there are absolutely political problems with it. Um, yeah. So I when I think about what to do, um, so first of all, I want to be clear that I'm not against democracy or the people uh, or the interests of the people. The problem is scope and scale. Um, so it's where do you want that to matter? Um, because on a national scale with 300 million or more people, um, it's just unworkable. Um, you're never going to find 
you're never going to have real politics in terms of the art of compromise. Um, what we need is a sort of subsidiarity in our electoral system, which we do not have. Uh, and we have worked against over the years. Um, so I've written about that. I won't get into my harebrained schemes uh, any more than that. But I have an essay we can check out. We can put in the show, show notes because uh, I have no plans of ever running for office because uh, <laughs> I know it makes me unelectable. But um, but the idea is, you know, you, you need people to actually have a voice on the most local level um, because that is where your vote counts the most. The fewer votes, the more one vote matters, right? Um, instead, we have people who are... Well, like like former President Donald Trump, who is going on, you know, stadium tours. You know, he's doing he's basically like an arena rock uh, guy and he's he's packing, uh, you know, sports stadiums with people cheering and holding up signs. And yes, like you need to win a majority of votes. So, of course, there's an element of populism in every campaign. If there isn't, you're not going to win. You have to you have to actually appeal to people. Um, and. So my thought, my, you know, my number one suggestion is we should not be voting for president, but that's not going to happen. So number two is uh, we need to we need to find uh, ways to return power to the more local level. Um, and that doesn't have to mean abolishing national elections, although I would like that. Um, but uh, but that's that's what you need if you care about this sort of th stuff. And the, the reason we, why we should care is. Direct democracy, that kind of mob rule has been tried. In fact, it was tried very soon after the founding of our republic in a place called France. Uh, we call it... Uh, How did that work out, Dylan? The reign of terror. Yeah. It was not good. Um, it didn't work out for France. Um, and it would not work out here. It has not worked out uh, in Egypt, for example. Uh, they had the, the Arab Spring, a populist movement. Uh, people were hopeful. Hey, democracy is going to finally spread across the Middle East. People are going to be free. And what happened? The people voted... The the Muslim Brotherhood into power um, and Coptic Christians started getting beheaded. Like, I mean, th this was an absolute disaster. Um, you saw it happen even here. The problem with populist uprisings is that sooner or later, somebody has to do the paperwork. And all of the people who are among the populist uprising who have day jobs go back to those day jobs and they leave some of the most interesting people to do the paperwork going forward. And I think you do see to some extent that that contributed to the rise of what we now know is, well, now what we now call as American populism with Donald Trump, you know, sort of the people who had the time and energy and passion to dedicate to conservative politics, you know, sort of trickled their way up and then we ultimately ended up with Donald Trump. But it goes to what you're saying that, you know, going to your school board and fighting for local policy at your city council are going to be more effective in terms of what you would consider or what I would consider a populist movement than voting a president for a populist movement. It, it doesn't quite work that way because populist movements ultimately need leadership and they ultimately need to carry on. And when that doesn't happen, you get incidents like the Arab Spring or even like the Tea Party. It loses effectiveness over time. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, it, you know, the, a lot of the hot button issues, the big culture war issues, that's where it matters most. So if you care about what your kid is being taught in schools, then you need to run for school board or show up to those those town halls and those meetings. That's where it will matter. That's where it'll affect your actual children. Um, not who's elected president. Um, if anything ever happens, it'll be years from now, and it'll probably be 
handled in the most ham-fisted way, um, and it'll leave an institutional structure that the next party can now take control of and do whatever they want. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's my big pitch, <laughs> I guess, against populism and for some kind of constitutional reform, or at least uh, a prioritization, uh, a cultural reform among voters to really care about those local elections. We turn up less statistically, far less uh, the more local the election is. If there's a national election, suddenly people show up. A lot of times, depending on the state, people just check a box for, you know, straight ticket voting. So they're, they're really not even looking at the more local offices. They're just voting for the person at the top. And then that means the national issues are now trickling down onto the local level rather than the other way around, which is how it should be. The local issues are being pushed up um, and that their importance is, is actually being, uh, you know, addressed. So that's my, my soapbox, I guess. Um, so I, my, my thought uh, with populism versus conservatism, conservatives should care about the Constitution. They should care about limitation of power. That should be what you're trying to conserve. They should care about the principles of this country. Um, I think Pence does care about those things, but I, he just he's not a big thinker like Reagan. He just isn't. I don't see any evidence of that. He's just kind of cutting and pasting his favorite quotes, and he's stringing them together, and his solution is that you elect him. Um, maybe that would be better than some other candidates. I'm not telling you not to vote for Mike Pence, but... Um, I just don't see that as as the big solution to populism. This is a point, again, for me to bang my drum about one of my favorite issues, which is, of course, Congress not working the way that Congress is supposed to work, which is we had a venue there created to be an outlet, a way to let off steam from the public, from the populace in a populist kind of way, and that's the House of Representatives. And I, I think not all of this, because again, I want to make the point that there has always been populist streaks both within the left and the right of uh, American politics. So this is just not a remarkably new thing. I don't like it all that much, but it's not new. It's not novel. But I think for a number of reasons, uh, the size of the House of Representatives, the size of the districts that people represent, to the extent that there are national issues that do need to be dealt with at the national level in Congress, and I think we deal with too many things at that level, to your point, Dylan, uh, to the extent that those things do have to happen, you know, we, we've had this limitation of how many congressional representatives there can be, which to my understanding comes from a declaration by the fire marshal of how many people can be inside the House of Representatives chamber, which doesn't seem like the best way to determine how many representatives there should be for a country. And I want to think that if there were more of them in smaller districts that were closer to the people that they were representing, you know, like I you know, Emily, you lived in the suburbs of Chicago. I lived in the city of Chicago. The people who represented us in Congress represented such massive districts with so many people in them. You could not possibly, you know, again, what the advantage of what you've described, Dylan, the way of handling politics on a local level is not that bad things or crazy things won't happen. It's just you see those people at the grocery store and you know exactly who to fire and how to fire them if they start doing weird and crazy things. You do not have that right now. You, I appreciated your point about the uh, direct election of senators, which is kind of my um, 
pet issue that nobody else cares about except for you and maybe Emily as well. Um, you know, the, a couple people within the sound of my voice. Uh, I don't think it is a good thing. We have moved that in a more populist direction with the, again, direct election of senators rather than them serving the point of representing states. We see this a whole lot of time in the dialogue around the United States Senate at this point that, you know, is like how many people or decision makers that represent, you know, only a fraction of the population that the other senators represent who come from California have so many more people. And it's like this has nothing to do with the orientation of the United States Senate. Um, and a lot of this is failures of civic education for people to understand how the system of government is supposed to work. Um, but, you know, I you made the point and the thing that I was trying to look up here was uh, – the point you made about conservatives supposed to respect the Constitution and all of that, we had this incident uh, a couple days ago in New Mexico where the governor of New Mexico basically declared because there have been shootings of people in New Mexico that she's suspending elements of the Second Amendment. And um, a person who I do not regard as a thinker of any significant quality, um, the podcast host Michael Knowles from The Daily Wire, who of course immediately had to jump in on it and say that, you know, actually, yeah, they do have powers. Uh, elect our civil leaders do have powers to suspend the Constitution. So this is, again, comes back to my bigger concern in all of this, which is the disregarding of the rules we're all supposed to work and live by in favor of what they want right now. And that's populist on the left and populist on the right. That is, the, to me, an orientation, a fundamental orientation of populism, which is I want what I want now, irrespective of the rule of law or anything else. And I think we are, until we find better ways to channel that energy, and again, we have a system that was designed to be able to channel that kind of energy. It is just not functioning properly. But until we figure all of that out, we are going to continue to have populist movements like this and need to figure out a way to handle them. I feel like anyone who's seen a zombie movie at any time in the last 40 years knows that when the Constitution gets suspended on any level, it's bad by anybody. <laughs> Correct. Well, again, you know, it was very interesting that the uh, Ted Lieu, uh, the very left wing congressman, I believe, from California, uh, jumped in immediately to say, like, this is in violation of the Constitution and it's not good. And you had all of these, you know, dopey new right people who are going, actually, kind of, I would like the power to suspend the Constitution to do things that I would like to do. And it just it, it goes to show you how things have gone off the rails. And no, despite what, again, Michael Knowles, who I regard as an uninteresting phenomenon, um, pointed out that it has nothing to do with the fact that the difference in position is because he's a conservative and Ted Lieu is a liberal. It, it has nothing to do with that. It is one actually is saying that the rules are the rules and we don't just get to ignore them when it's convenient for us. And another person is saying, I would just like power and I don't really care how. And that is the fundamental difference that is on offer there. I want to move on now to our second topic, uh, which is the sentencing of Danny Masterson, who was an actor. Uh, you, if you watched that 70s show, you may have seen there. I'm going to read a bit here, a brief from uh, TMZ, probably the first and maybe the last time that TMZ will be uh, quoted on this program. Oh, you wish. I wish. Um, we've already we've already established in the previous segment we can't have nice things, so we will continue now to not have nice things. 
Uh, Danny Masterson has finally been sentenced months after he was convicted on two rape counts to 30 years to life behind bars. The That 70s Show star was sentenced Thursday to 30 years in a Los Angeles court. He was facing 30 years to life after being found guilty on two of his three counts, so the sentence isn't all that surprising. The angle of this that I would like to take a look at is... I'm going to read again uh, here from a piece from Deadline. Uh, Leah Remini rips criminal Scientology in aftermath of Danny Masterson prison sentencing. Uh, again, from this piece, already engaged in a lawsuit of her own against Scientology, Leah Remini blasted the church today following the sentencing of prominent Scientologist Danny Masterson to 30 years in prison on rape convictions. Calling the David Miscavige-led organization, quote, a multi-billion dollar criminal organization with tax-exempt status, the former King of Queens star and ex-Scientologist took to social media to center on the church's alleged cover-up of Masterson's crimes and others. Quote, for over two decades, Danny Masterson avoided accountability for his crimes, Remini tweeted Thursday. While Danny was uh, the only one sentenced, his conviction and sentence are indictments against Scientology, its operatives, and its criminal leader, David Miscavige. What I would like to dive into here is we hear these calls every once in a while uh, for the ending of things like tax-exempt statuses for churches. Um, you, you would consider the Church of Scientology here to be kind of the low-hanging fruit of that, right? I, it we can all rehearse, and you know, Emily, I'll go to you first here because I know you've you've uh, looked a lot into the Church of Scientology, and I believe also has talked to Leah Remini about um, some of her experiences. I don't think it is unreasonable to discuss it in the kind of organized crime terms that Leah Remini is talking about in here. But what makes me inherently nervous about this kind of thing is I think we want to be very delicate with who we empower to decide what is and is not a legitimate church for the purpose of uh, certain constitutional protections, tax protections. Yeah. Uh, it, while it would be, the problem is not the thing that we could all probably agree on in that the Church of Scientology is probably not a church in the way that I think we would define one. However, there are a lot of people, especially as one goes throughout American history, um, that would look at the Catholic Church as not being a church in the way that they would like to define one. Right. And you open a door to this kind of thing by bowling it, bowling it over by uh, with the easy example of the church in Scientology. And before you know it, you find yourself in some very dangerous places. Yeah, and to be honest, the Church of Scientology really defines – church very broadly right i mean it owns tax-exempt property it it in most cities it has largely used its tax-exempt status to amass wealth and you know to enforce secrecy on itself um and on its membership you know to say certain people within the organization are ministers and so they're subject first to the criminal proceedings of the Church of Scientology and second to the criminal proceedings of the United States for their local police department. So it has used often um, its tax exempt status as a cudgel, but on the other end of the spectrum, we really do have a very liberal approach to what we define as a church. And the reason being for that is that freedom of religion is generally <laughs> a top priority in the Bill of Rights. 
And so there really is this ability to go out and form your own church and form it around, you know, you say you received a transmission from the aliens and the aliens have told you that you should serve wine to Mormons or whatever, smoke peyote in the desert. Um, for the most part, we allow you to do that because it really does have an impact even when you talk about the Church of Scientology and revoking its tax-exempt status. There are some limitations. For instance, you know, you cannot sacrifice animals. That was a case um, in front of the Supreme Court back in the 80s or 90s. Um, Scalia himself said smoking peyote or other drugs, not necessarily, if they are, if those drugs are illegal, you cannot necessarily form up the church of marijuana, um, in order to not be subject to federal drug laws. Um, but generally, you know, we have a very liberal approach to the church of Scientology. And I think Leah Rimini comes at it from the idea that the church has used the tax exempt status to shield itself from law enforcement. But what has happened here with Masterson is this is actually the end of something like a 20-year crusade to bring Masterson to justice. Um, and the first time that many of these women approached the LAPD, they were um, subject to police officers who were themselves members of the Church of Scientology or were affiliated with the Church of Scientology and protected the membership. Um, at least that's, you know, Leah Remini's theory, and it seems to pan out with documentation. Um, and Masterson, it took 20 years to bring him to justice because they waited until the Church of Scientology was less powerful. Um, the Me Too movement had a lot of impact on that, um, even though, you know, now we see Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis kind of going against that. Um, but, you know, Masterson is a good example of how many of these civil authorities, the, the Church of Scientology eked its way into the civil authorities and and tried to institute its own justice. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of an interesting you know, it's sort of symbiotic relationship that it has with Los Angeles Police Department, and that appears to be crumbling now. Um, but yeah, we we define the church churches for tax exempt status very liberally for a very specific reason, and that's you know we were founded on religious freedom by religious lunatics. Yeah. So the foundation and limitation of religious liberty is the same. It is natural law. Uh, because people are free, equal, and rational by nature, they are allowed to choose their own religion and ought to be. Um, however, you also cannot use another person as a means to an end, and you cannot violate their life, liberty, or property. These are just basic principles of our nation, but they're also, they go back way farther than that. They're founded in natural law, and they're f founded in specific Christian development of uh, the understanding of natural law, although they're not at all limited to uh, the Christian religion. Um, and this tells me that, you know, what, what we've done has been very good. So uh, I don't know if anyone's history buffs, but there, there was this thing called the Wars of Religion that was very bad in Europe. Uh, and we haven't had that here. Um, uh, we've had other problems in the United States um, and in the modern era, but religious liberty has been a good thing. Um, and one of the costs of religious liberty is tolerating some pretty crazy people starting their own religion. It's just, it's been 
story of our nation uh, forever. Uh, we've always had people say, guess what? New prophecy, whatever. You know, th this sort of thing has happened. Sometimes it's been innocuous. Sometimes it's been very dangerous. Um, I think Scientology is such a thing uh, that it's, it's bad. Uh, I mean, um, it's pretty well known that the science fiction author L. Ron Hubbard uh, created the religion uh, in a bet with a friend uh, that he could start a religion. Uh, the man was a known pedophile. He was, you know, he's it's he's a terrible guy who started a religion in order to trick people and make money. And what do you know? That's what they, they're continuing that tradition today by all by all evidence. By the way, all of the examples that I gave you are actually from Supreme Court cases. So even the guy who got a message from the aliens to serve alcohol in Mormon territory also yeah. a protected religion right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah the no. church of lukumi babaluai was sacrificing animals also right. a religion <laughs> right um so i mean that's always been how we've navigated this no right no freedom is unlimited um from the perspective of natural law um so it's the foundation and the limitation and so when i look at this i don't think the solution is we need to have the government start determining you know, what is a true religion and, you know, revoking tax exempt status and that sort of thing, because uh, that could cascade in very bad ways if you point it out. However, it is illegal to commit fraud. It is illegal to steal. It's illegal to defame. Um, it's illegal uh, to to obstruct justice, to corrupt the police and the law enforcement. All of these things, uh, to the extent that that Church of Scientology has done this, they can and should be prosecuted for it. Um, and doing so might bankrupt them, <laughs> incidentally. Um, it might be the sort of thing that really, you know, if you, if you have this big crusade, um, I can't remember the actress's name, but such as Lee her. Remedy. Yeah, um, that's the way to do it. I don't think you have to take aim at uh, religious liberty and at the tax-exempt status that has come along with that. The reason why we have tax-exempt status for religion is because we believe religion is a good thing in this country. Um, and we and this goes back to Roman law, uh, to be clear. I mean, this is, again, a longstanding thing. Uh, it's that there is a realm of social life uh, that needs to be separate. Uh, as Christ said, you know, give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Um, and so there's, there's this division here, and we're not going to tax religion. We're going to let people have their beliefs, their faith, uh, their conscience freely. Um, it's not going to have any government price tag. Um, that's a very, very important thing even though people can still use that terribly. Yeah, and we assume that churches and tax-exempt organizations are going to do things on a local or even a global level that government would be forced to do in the interim. So, you know, if you need to feed the homeless, if you need to shelter the homeless, if you need to, you know, visit jails, those things are best done by these community-centric organizations. You know, it goes back to this, you know, idea of subsidiarity and populism the community is best able to handle the problems within the community. And so we empower them by saying, you don't have to pay the taxes, spend the money somewhere else. Um, you know, the Church of Scientology does do that to some extent. They run some programs, but I, they're mostly church of, you know, fronts to get you into the Church of Scientology um, and to sell you dental uh, equipment, by the way. Your dentist actually might buy because obviously equipment from, yeah, <laughs> from, from uh, Scientologists, but they're, they do have sort of this front um, that, that is required to keep up the, uh, the tax exempt status. Yeah, I will say for any listeners, uh, because we also have free speech in this country, for any listeners considering Scientology, I highly recommend uh, you rent the movie adaptation of Battlefield Earth 
by L. Ron Hubbard, uh, which is possibly one of the worst, worst movies, movies ever yeah. made, but it's hilariously bad. Yeah. And then ask yourself, could the man who imagined this <laughs> be a new age prophet? And you will probably say no, and it will disabuse you of any interest you had in Scientology. Yeah, we'll, we'll also throw out, uh, while we're at it, two other movie recommendations. Then um, there is the uh, documentary Going Clear, and I'm trying to remember uh, Alex Gibney, um, which is a, a great documentary examination of the Church of Scientology, uh, which— you know, has some very wild beliefs. And like, as we've referenced before, there are, again, from kind of a neutral perspective, there are a lot of churches in American history and world history that have had some wild beliefs, but, you know, not all of them are equal. Um, the other would be just also because um, uh still miss him as an actor. Um, the film The Master, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film with Joaquin Phoenix and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, where Philip Seymour Hoffman is essentially playing L. Ron Hubbard in the film. It's not specifically about Scientology. Uh, they couldn't do it that way because of how famously litigious the Church of Scientology is. Uh, but it is uh, another recommendable film. Uh, well, I'll make one more point on this, and I think we can move on to our final topics. But I'm glad that uh, we invoked the uh, Mormon Church. In this conversation, because I want to add the one other element to all of this, which is just general social pressure, um, the social pressure that existed on the Mormon church and a lot of the things, the ways that the people in the Mormon church were persecuted, driven out of Illinois, um, many of them murdered, horrible stuff, absolutely horrible stuff that happened. Um, no, in no way making any kind of apology for the horrible treatment that those people received. Um, a huge crux of it especially after the relocation out into Utah and Utah wants to become a state, uh, essentially a social bargain was made with the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that said, get rid of the polygamy. And yes, you, you can be a state and, and everything will be fine. And essentially they did, other than some sects that you hear about and that you read about um, that aren't parts of the main Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they've moved on from all of that. Uh, that's a good thing. I, I think, again, I, the points that have been made about how there are legal ways to handle what the Church of Scientology is alleged to have done and still be doing are absolutely appropriate. Um, the scrutiny on them absolutely should be applied, but the kind of social pressure uh, exists as well and should exist for them to, if you know, they want to continue to exist as a quote-unquote legitimate church, then there's certain ways that there's certain changes that they could make, changes in leadership, changes in the way that they operate um, that would at least normalize them some and get them out of the kind of obvious – criminality, it seems, that they seem to be pursuing and that you has been revealed in documentaries like Going Clear and from ex-Scientologists like Leah Remini. Um, I think it's all very important stuff to, uh, to consider, but there's a social pressure element that does and can exist here, and I think we should keep that in mind. Let's move on to our final topic. Uh, two things that we can remember. One of them today is uh, the 22nd anniversary of September 11th. Uh, we'll put in the show notes an interview I did a year or two ago uh, with one of the firefighters um, who was a first responder on that day, uh, who hosted a, a great—it was been two years ago for the 20th anniversary—really uh, great podcast series telling some of the stories uh, that come out of that day. 
I think for, you know, probably for all three of this, uh, all three of us on this program, this is a pretty formative uh, experience in our lives. So 22 years on, Dylan, what are what are your thoughts today on this 22nd anniversary of September 11th? Uh, I mean, for me, it's still the most generation defining event uh, in my life. Um, demographers often want to define, define millennials based on uh, socioeconomically determined factors such as technology usage. And, and they also have kind of arbitrarily arbitrary ranges of ages. So uh, some demographers will include people who were five years old on September 11. I was 18 years old and seen, or well, I was 17 years old in senior English class. I was turning 18 the next May. Um, that's going to impact you different at that age. Um, I mean, I thought we, we had no idea what would come next. And we thought we could be drafted. I mean, this was the Deadliest attack, uh, a foreign attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor. Last time that happened, it was World War II, right? Um, we had no idea. So it could have been much, much worse. Um, but now we have the hindsight of 20 years later, a uh, very disastrous pullout of Afghanistan. Um, and I can't help but think about that as well, as it could have been much, much better. Um, there's just an absolute tragic legacy we have left there. Um, our approach, uh, rather than simply you know, finding the terrorists and bringing them to justice, we declared war on terror. Um, and we did so in a, an unrelenting re relenting way um, that really has not changed. Uh, yeah, we, we pulled out of Afghanistan, again, disastrously, but Joe Biden gave a speech, and I wrote about it on our, our blog, uh, where he said, we will not forgive. We will not forget. Um, terrorism is not fueled by uh, materialistic forces. It's, it's, these are religious fanatics um, who believe God is on their side, um, and bombs, guns, and drones will never defeat that. You need something more powerful than that. The only thing I know of is forgiveness, and that's a very, very hard thing, uh, even 22 years on. Uh, but that's something that I really hope people will work on today. I think I'm in the same position. I mean, I was a little bit older, um, in my first year of college when it happened. I can't believe that we watched that live. I can't believe that kids who were much younger than me watched it live in classrooms. Um, I, I still, to this day, remember it almost extremely clearly. Um, but then also, you know, now 22 years on, we look at the lives that were lost. Many of my friends came back from places like Iraq and Afghanistan without limbs. Um, and then to see, you know, us pull out of Afghanistan and leave people crying on a tarmac like we did in Saigon, I, 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 I'm still shocked at the two decades that ensued from there. Um, so for me, I think it's just sort of this ongoing tragedy, not just what happened on September 11th, which is seared in my memory um, and overtook Columbine. Because I think for many yeah. of us who That's were in yeah. high school in the late 90s, Columbine was the defining yeah. mm -hmm. um, aspect of our high school years. And then to have something like um, uh, September 11th happen, you know, very early on in my college experience, it's very interesting. Um, and also that my children will live in a very different world from the one that I grew up in, because the war on terror will continue to grow. But then... We've also somehow forgotten or passed on from what we went after in those first few months, you know, like what happened to terrorism? What happened to radical Islam? What happened to that? All of the people who were so tunnel focused on that have now moved on to other things. So it's um, 
it's this odd and complicated experience, I think, two years on. Still very shocking, but also um, very difficult to wrestle with as, as time has gone on, especially as a conservative. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with with all of that, the, of what you both said. I, I still remember it vividly, too. I was my uh, sophomore year of college, and I had I was going to my modern philosophy class at an 8 a.m. class when I got a message from my freshman year roommate's ex-girlfriend on AOL Instant Messenger who told me to turn on the TV. And that was about the last thing that I wanted to do at like, you know, 7.45 in the morning. And then it, it is this combination of like clear moments and a blur throughout the rest of the day. And we're walking over to the student union and watching the first tower collapse on the TV in the lounge and then just being utterly uncertain of what I was supposed to do next. So I went and got breakfast. Um, I just I had no idea what the next correct thing to do was. And I remember being asked a year or two ago, I think two years ago, by one of our emerging leader summer interns um, who it had occurred to me, uh, I believe was born in 2001. So she, of course, would have absolutely no memory of all of this and only knows the world that was created after 9-11 happened and formed by that experience, but doesn't remember the experience itself, the extent to which she thought, you know, or that I thought we were still kind of living with the consequences of that. And I think my first answer was somewhat dismissive, where I think, like, I think we've just kind of largely forgotten and moved on from it. And I spent the rest of the day reflecting on that question. I think I was wrong and very wrong in my initial answer that I think we are still very clearly living with the consequences of this. I saw somebody point out that so many of the the changes around things like security um, have just kind of been absorbed into the American experience. Yeah, been on a plane lately? Well, I, it, <laughs> Daniel, uh, producer of this program, and I were both on – we were just in D.C. at the end of last week. I mean it's uh, – you can pay for – uh, TSA pre-check and clear and things like that and expedite that part of getting through security. But, you know, on my way through security on uh, at the Grand Rapids Airport heading out to D.C., I had to have my uh, Harry's deodorant swab to make sure that it was absolutely safe. Um, and I don't know that anybody left still feels that these measures are doing all that much to keep us actually safe. We we have this problem from a security perspective, as we often do from a uh, war and foreign policy perspective, that we fight the last battle. The, the odds that if there's another kind of terrorist attack of the scale of September 11th, that it is going to come in exactly the same form of hijacking airplanes and flying them into skyscrapers is just pretty much non-existent, which is why on the morning of September 11th, it was completely reasonable that the first reaction to a hijacking of airplanes was to think they're going to land on a runway somewhere, they're going to sit on a tarmac, and there's going to be some kind of negotiation, or there's going to be some kind of military interdiction of it, kind of like we're watching Chuck Norris and Delta Force, because that is the way that we handled these things back then. And then it completely changed with what happened after the planes were hijacked. And to me, there's not enough forward thinking about what the next thing might look like, and we're still just living in reaction to what the last thing looked like. And I don't know that we're being helped all that much by that point of view on this. I think we live in reaction, both positive and negative. Um, in some way, when you go to the COVID 
um, of 2020, the, you know, those first few months or first few weeks when everything looked so apocalyptic, many people, I think, looked back on September 11th and said there were no terrorist attacks after September 11th. Therefore, whatever the government tells me to do right now, I will do it. Um, and so you saw people thinking that they were going to be not getting a virus because they were going a certain direction down a lane in a grocery store. So we we have this sort of odd now outlook on massive tragedy. We don't sort of listen to our own conscious consciousness, conscience. Um, and we will always say like, oh, they have the answers. Um, and we still kind of roll with that, which is um, really interesting to me now 20 years on from yeah, that. I, I think that's a great point. And I, I think it underscores how how much that event shattered the psyche of people who lived through it. I mean, it really, as we were talking about it being, you know, the end of your high school experience, the beginning of, of Emily, your and my college experience. I mean, it it really was, it, it was the one of the last moments where I think uh, everybody will be able to say exactly where they were and what they were doing for the people who remember living through it. And I think we are living with the consequences of that day still. And we talked about populism earlier, and there's a connection between populism and conspiracy theorizing. There was all kinds of conspiracy theorizing that came out of 9-11, both on the left and on the right. And I think we're still living with the consequences of of that today and, and of of the age that was just starting to dawn as well with the prevalence of the Internet. I mean, we can even if you never saw it, you know, the timing of YouTube and the faux documentary Loose Change, which is just a conspiratorial rant with no basis in reality whatsoever, um, the timing of those things coming out, it was, you know, we were breaking down the walls and democratizing content and making it much easier for people to publish whatever it was that they were willing to publish. And and again, to kind of similar to Emily's point, there was a lot of good consequences and bad consequences of that. It is very much a mixed bag. But I think we very much are living with the consequences of 9-11 still 22 years on and probably will still be coping with them in a decade or two or three or four from now. Yeah, I mean, something that, you know, we've seen only get worse with uh, the development of the internet um, is the conspiratorial thinking. But you had you had films like uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 911, right? Yep. You know where he was. It's it's a complete, and he's known for doing total hack jobs and editing and and completely, yep. you know, butchering interviews and stuff like that. But it, you know, like you you have that sort of thing. Uh, there's a certain population uh, that really latched onto that to get back to populism and how, why it can be very bad. Now we have, you know, QAnon, which uh, I think is kind of a, a very, you know, dark uh, reflection of spontaneous order and uh, that, you know, people, it's just kind of these bad feedback loops of one conspiracy theory fitting into another. Um, you know, the next thing might be an AI doing the conspiracy theorizing for us, right? I mean, I don't think we're that far off. Maybe somebody's already doing it. Um, and and it's very dangerous. In fact, I, so I looked today, George W. Bush was trending this morning. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I didn't, I'm not a supporter of the war on terror. But I remember at the time, you know, he had, he had one of the highest popularities of any president in U.S. history right after 9-11. In the 80th uh, percentile, the I think, The yeah. first thing I saw trending was him... Uh, I think it was like the game three of the World Series Correct. or something like that. Yep. He threw the opening pitch and it was a strike down the middle. Yeah. And not only did everybody cheer, but they broke into chants of USA. Yeah. Right. It was this amazing sort of, you know, the nation needed to heal. And you had this guy that 
was doing a great job um, in terms of the leadership side of that. Um, but then every almost every other tweet was here's what really happened. And it was just like yeah, it yeah. was really insane stuff and like contradictory stuff. So 12 different people think they know what really happened. And none of those 12 stories can actually line up and be true. Um it was really, really crazy. And it's, and in, you know, to Emily's point, like it's absolutely seared in my memory. I remember I was in senior English class and it was like all day. We just had the TV on, except for math class. We had the TV on, but the sound off and we still did math. But, um, but, but we, we watched that and we saw it happen with our own eyes. We, we saw the planes hit the buildings. We saw them fall. Um, it, it, it's not something that was this big conspiratorial hoax. Um, to get oil or something like that, which is insane. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that, there's easier ways to get rich, by the way. Um, and so you're not going to do that. Um, so there, it's it's just, it, it, it does speak to something that I love people and I love our democracy, um, but lots of people can get really bad ideas into their heads. Um, and we have a constitution in place uh, to prevent mob rule on purpose, uh, while at the same time empowering democracy. Um, and that's something that we should not take for granted. I want to move on to one other remembrance before we go, which is there was no program last week, so we couldn't have mentioned this last week on Labor Day weekend, uh, which is, you know, while uh, it was sad for me as a fan uh, to see the passing of Jimmy Buffett, uh, him passing on Labor Day weekend seems about the most appropriate thing that Jimmy Buffett could do uh, if he was going to die at, I believe, 75, too young. Um, Emily, since we have you, I know uh, you and uh, the toddlers who make a uh, guest appearance on the program here every once in a while, uh, quite big Jimmy Buffett fans. My toddlers are Jimmy Buffett super fans. Does that, yeah, I, I, we actually I learned, haven't said anything. I actually oh. learned that the... Um, uh, Parent parrot heads are are Jimmy Buffett fans. I've learned that kids are apparently called parakeets. Parakeets. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I live in a house of parakeets. They so we I have actually seen Jimmy Buffett at least three times. One of which I traveled like halfway across the country to see him with the Eagles. Um, but yeah, it's a huge thing in my house. Very sad, but of course, as you said, he. He left on Labor Day weekend and his last words were have fun. So I really can't think of like any better way um, that Jimmy Buffett could have gone out really. Like, um, but as as a Catholic, a lot of his um a lot of his songs actually have Catholic themes. He was a Catholic school kid and he talks a lot about nuns and talks about um he uses Latin appropriately in some of his songs. Props. <laughs> it's a yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got. I got to listen to more Jimmy yeah, Buffett. Yeah, Jimmy yeah. Buffett. Yeah, this mm. one right that here. That was perfect. The one that just, the one that just commented, Jimmy Buffett is, is our mega fan. He actually had his birthday party at Margaritaville. Oh. Let me see this one. Oh. Uh, um, Guys. You had a rendition of Finn. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I, uh, I was lucky enough to see uh, Jimmy Buffett once, which is at Wrigley Field, uh, Labor Day weekend in 2005, um, which was just a great, it was incredible party. And really, that's what it was, was uh, was a party. And I was on the third baseline and it was so cool to turn around and look at the grandstands during Finns and seeing people doing the, the Finns motion in each direction. Um, but uh, to me, 
there are two other artists I think of in kind of a similar way to Jimmy Buffett, uh, who I think are brilliant, either bands or artists, and are underappreciated to the extent that they are only remembered by the songs that get a ton of radio airplay. Um, and those two groups are uh, Bare Naked Ladies and Warren Zevon. Like if all you knew of Warren Zevon was Werewolves of London, you were missing out on so many amazing things. I think the same thing is true of, of Bare Naked Ladies, but certainly of, of Jimmy Buffett. You know, if you only know Margaritaville, if you only know Cheeseburger in Paradise, and my mom reminded me that when I was little, um, I was convinced that Jimmy Buffett was like a big overweight guy because it seemed like all the songs were about food. Jimmy Buffet. Uh, Jimmy Buffet, right? Well, we went to we went to Margaritaville, I guess, at Universal Studios once, and the waitress did tell us uh, her two favorite questions that she gets are one, who is Jimmy Buffett? Like if you're at the restaurant, again, I understand there's a limited number of selections uh, if you're in in a studio park like that. But really, really? Uh, And the other is the people who come in and ask where the buffet is, um, which is just fantastic. Uh, But there are so many. He's so many good songs about like facing the reality of aging as well. Like a pirate looks at 40, uh, one particular harbor. I mean, there are so many great songs in his catalog that if get all you know where the radio hits 31 albums which is remarkable yeah wow. so if you think Take that you that mean only know him from those eight songs or the big eight as as i think they're called like margaritaville yeah son of a son of a sailor um if you only know him from that man there's a lot and it, what's really cool is here in east nashville um i live maybe a couple blocks from where most of those were recorded which is kind of cool um and and it's amazing and recorded in the heyday of folk and the heyday of country music and he was friends with Truman Capote that I found out yeah on all of these other albums and (laughs) he's got this massive you know massive studio band the Coral Reefers who are are, give performances all the time so it's really an experience to go it's like Bare Naked Ladies um if you don't go to a concert of yeah. Naked ladies i don't think you get the full experience because it really is like this participation between the audience and the performer um grateful dead shows dead and company very similar like there's this fish shows that you have this like kind of symbiotic relationship between the performer and the audience and the audience isn't going to let him go and the performer's not going to stop feeding off of it um, and Jimmy Buffett was very much like that. It was cool as well at the concert I saw at Wrigley Field, learning that he was also uh, friends with Steve Goodman, who, uh, again, if you know him, it's poss- probably from one of two songs. Um, either it was at the City of New Orleans, which I think was his most uh, radio airplay song, but also he's the guy who wrote Go Cubs Go, which is played after every Chicago Cubs victory, which is written for like a WGN promo. And, and it- you want a fun fact about that. Jimmy Buffett was partially responsible for them continuing to use Go Cubs Go um, because the Beach Boys recorded. Yeah, my husband's nodding. The Beach Boys recorded a Cubs specific song that they were supposed to play at the end. Um, and Steve Goodman got Jimmy Buffett involved and Jimmy Buffett called them and said, no, he convinced Steve Goodman's wife and a widow, um, at the, t- uh, Steve Goodman's fans got Jimmy Buffett involved. He called Steve Goodman's widow and got them to keep go cups going. So wow. absolutely amazing. My favorite Jimmy Buffett, Buffett trivia. I only learned a week ago when somebody tweeted this as an homage, but apparently he was in the movie Jurassic world. Yes. And there's a scene for, for about like 
a quarter of a second. There's a scene where a dinosaur comes smashing through a cafe, and Jimmy Buffett is one of the people running away, and he's double fisting margaritas. Yes, which is <laughs> just amazing, as appropriate <laughs> as uh, as it could be. We'll call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. 